You are listening to Perplexity. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. I am your host, Kadra, and this is part two of a true crime case. We are going to be getting into the conclusion and some really upsetting events. So if you missed part one last week, be sure to go back and listen to that. Uh, Last week, we left off on the unraveling of Ron and Dan Lafferty, the brothers of Alan Lafferty. They had been excommunicated from the LDS faith, and their marriages and careers were in shambles. Ron began to speak of violent principles such as blood atonement, and he was claiming to get a lot of messages from God. Ron Lafferty also started to call his revelations from God removal revelations, and in these revelations, he was beginning to claim that God told him four people were willed to be removed from the earth. So before we get into the rest of this story, trigger warning for this episode. Big trigger warning. We are going to be discussing violence, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 16. And all of the sources for today's episode will be in the show notes. So the four people that Ron Lafferty claimed were mentioned in this removal revelation from God were Brenda Lafferty, her 15-month-old daughter, Erica Lafferty, and the two members of the LDS church that helped Diane leave Ron, so Richard Stowe and Chloe Lowe. Ron claimed that the reason 15-month-old Erica was part of this removal revelation was because she would just grow up to be a bitch like her mother Brenda. He claimed that Erica's soul was already doomed to damnation. So the next revelation Ron announced to the School of Prophets was that the School of Prophets would be involved in this removal. Dan and Watson Jr. believed Ron and agreed to this plan. The other members of the School of Prophets, though, had some sense, and they did not agree to this. They did not think that murder was okay, and they stopped associating with the three brothers. So now this group is just down to three people. Dan, Ron, and Watson Jr. Lafferty. Meanwhile, Brenda Lafferty has no idea about any of this, these removal revelations. And Brenda was also the only woman in the Lafferty family at this point that hadn't been subjected to physical and psychological abuse. She still had some autonomy, and obviously Dan and Ron didn't like that. So on July 24th, 1984, All of this tension comes to a head. Alan Lafferty left for work early in the morning at a construction site about 80 miles from his apartment. He called home during his lunch break, where he briefly talked to Brenda, and he also heard his daughter Erica babbling on the phone, and everything seemed totally normal and fine. The phone call would end, and that would be the last time that Alan Lafferty would ever talk to Brenda or Erica. Ron and Dan Lafferty planned to go to Salt Lake City with some of their friends that day. So on their way to Salt Lake, 
Ron suggested that they stop at their brother Mark's house to get a rifle. When Ron got the rifle, Mark asked him what he needed it for. And Ron replied, quote, I'm going hunting for any fucking thing that gets in my way. Ron, Dan, and their two friends, Richard Knapp and Chip Carnes, then went to Alan and Brenda's apartment. And I'm so frustrated at this point because, like, Ron had already threatened Brenda in front of Alan. So, like, Alan knew there was this potential for violence. That's my opinion. The School of Prophets had heard about these removal revelations and these threats on people's lives. And they didn't warn anyone. And then Ron goes to Mark's house and... Ron hasn't gone hunting in years and needs a rifle and makes these very concerning statements and Mark doesn't warn anyone. And then these two freaking people in the car, like, it's just there's so many people who knew about this and they did absolutely nothing. So they show up at Brenda and Alan's apartment and Ron claimed this was because they were gonna get another rifle, I guess borrow it from Alan. But while they were driving there, Ron and Dan began to talk about the potential of this removal revelation being fulfilled today. They arrived at the apartment and Ron knocked on the door. The other men stayed in the car, but no one answered the door and eventually they gave up and drove off. But after just a little bit more driving, Dan insisted that they turn back to Alan and Brenda's apartment and try again. When they arrived at the apartment for the second time, Dan Lafferty got out of the car and knocked on the door. Brenda opened the door this time, and Dan would force his way inside. Ron and their two friends at this time would claim that they heard arguing coming from inside of the apartment. Ron then got out of the car and went inside the apartment as well. One of the friends, a man named Chip Carnes, heard Ron calling Brenda a bitch and a liar. He then heard Brenda being physically assaulted. And then he soon heard her pleading cries for them to not hurt her baby. They then heard the cries of an infant. And then there was an abrupt silence. A few more minutes passed before Ron and Dan left the apartment and got back in the car. When Ron and Dan would go to the car, they would be covered in blood. They then drove to the home of Chloe Lowe. Ron told the others during the drive that Chloe was very small, so she'd make an easy target. Luckily, no one was home when the men arrived to Chloe's home. But they did break in and steal some things before getting back in the car to make one final detour. And it's not clear in the story if it was just Ron and Dan that broke into the apartment or if these other friends were involved as well. I'm I'm not sure. But either way, they're clearly going along with this. And you'll see that more later. So their final detour was, of course, to Richard Stowe's house. The final fourth member of this removal revelation. But they missed the turn for his house, and they decided it best to continue their journey to Salt Lake City. And to me, this shows lack of planning. Like, 
they grab the weapons on their way out and then they're just suddenly going house to house when they don't know these people are home. Like it's, it's very rushed, it's very chaotic and it's just very insane. So they decided to just continue to Salt Lake. They stopped at a gas station before driving towards Wendover, a town in Nevada. And during this next leg of the drive, Ron pulled the knife out of his boot and began to hit it on his knee, yelling, I killed her, I killed her, I killed her, I killed the bitch, I can't believe I killed her. He then handed the knife over to Dan and said, thank you, brother, for doing the baby, because I don't think I had it in me. Dan responded, no problem, brother. They eventually reached Wendover, where they rented a small room to clean themselves up, eat, and sleep, which would indicate that when they went to the gas station, they were covered in blood. So it's just like, they they don't care at all. So later that night, around 8 p.m., Alan Lafferty would arrive home from work. Alan noticed that the front door was locked, which was not common for Brenda to do. He then noticed the house was in total disarray and the TV was on blaring a baseball game, which is not something Brenda would ever watch. So he quickly knew something was wrong. Then he saw blood smeared across one of the light switches. This is when he soon found the body of his wife of two years, Brenda, She was lying in the kitchen in a pool of blood. She had been badly beaten, and a vacuum cord was wrapped tightly around her neck. Brenda's throat had been so deeply cut that it had sliced through her trachea, both carotid arteries, both jugular veins, and the cut was all the way down to her spinal column. So she had practically been decapitated. Alan then attempted to call 911, but he realized that the phone wasn't working. So he rushed to the bedroom where their other phone extension was to try again. This is where he would find 15-month-old Erica Lafferty lying motionless in her crib. She was lying in a pool of blood and the crib was soaked with blood. She was only wearing a diaper, which was also soaked with blood and her throat had also been slashed. And again, the cut was so deep and severe that it had completely destroyed, you know, the arteries, the jugular veins, her trachea, her esophagus, and she also was almost practically decapitated. Her spinal column had also been cut a little bit. I feel like there's just, there's no words to describe the depravity in this situation. So I I feel like y'all can hear the emotion in my voice. I'm just going to leave it at that. But, you know, Alan discovers all of this and the phone still isn't working. So he rushed to a neighbor's house to call 911. But of course, at this point, it's too late. They're both dead, but the police need to investigate. Alan then called his mother and told her what he had found. And Alan would later say he knew from the moment he saw Brenda lying on the floor that he knew who was responsible for this. The police soon arrived and Alan was actually arrested on suspicion of the murders. He was interrogated all night at the American Fork police station. And I I do feel for him in this. Like, I I can't imagine 
finding your your wife and your infant daughter murdered and like like that i mean i'm sure he was completely traumatized he should not have to be interrogated but at the same time it's a double murder there's a child involved like they have to find out who's responsible so it's it's complex but throughout this interrogation alan was eventually able to convince the police to look at ron and dan lafferty but at this point ron and dan they're gone they're completely mia and the police would be unable to find them for about three months. So after the murders, they fled the area. Eventually an APB was put out for both of the men. And of course the story blows up in the media. I mean, it's a horrifying story. So before the police could track down Ron and Dan Lafferty though, they were able to find the two friends in Wyoming, Richard Knapp and Chip Carnes, the ones that were in the car and were present for everything that happened. They had spent the last several months traveling around with Ron and Dan, which makes me have absolutely zero sympathy for these two assholes. Like, it's, it's not like they were just wrong place, wrong time. They continued to travel around with them for the next few months and lie low and not turn them in. Like they, they said nothing. So fuck these guys. So they're interrogated by the police and Knapp and Carnes would then give information on Ron and Dan's whereabouts. So the police go to Reno, Nevada. And on August 7th, they end up at the Circus Circus Casino. And this is where they would find Ron and Dan Lafferty standing in a buffet line, just enjoying their fucking lives. So on August 7th, Ron and Dan are arrested. And in the media, they would claim that these charges were completely false and they were totally innocent. Ron also claimed the Mormon church would prevent he and Dan from getting a fair trial because they, his words, completely controlled Utah. Ron and Dan were put in jail, awaiting trial. For a while, Ron and Dan actually shared a cell together at the county jail. And Dan claims during this time that Ron Lafferty tried to kill him. He said Ron was having, quote, bad spirits. And to me, when I was reading all of this, this sounded a lot like schizophrenia. And it seems like this was confirmed later on but Ron ended up beating Dan up pretty bad, and Dan allegedly refused to fight back, but they ended up being separated. They were put in two different cells after this. Ron then convinced Dan later that he had received another revelation from God, which was that Dan was destined to die as well, and Ron was meant to kill him. So Dan would agree to this, actually, and it's said that Dan backed up towards the cell bars and Ron wrapped a towel around Dan's neck, attempting to strangle him. This ended up being unsuccessful, and Dan would later wake up on the floor of his cell. Ron would later claim that he let go of Dan and didn't go through with the killing, because God apparently told him that if Dan let out another breath, that he was supposed to live. So, like, which one is it? Is God telling you you're supposed to kill him or not? I'm confused. Ron saw Dan's chest soon rise after, and he let him go. And a couple of days later, Ron received another revelation that Dan was supposed to die. 
So he's supposed to die, then he's not. Then he's supposed to die, then he's not. <laughs> it's just completely ridiculous. And then Dan prayed about this revelation that Ron received. And Dan felt like this wasn't right. Dan was like, well, God's telling me I'm not supposed to die. <laughs> So just these crazy delusions are going on, and Dan doesn't agree to being killed this time. But about five months later, on December 29th, five days before their trial, because they were going to be tried together, Ron attempted suicide by hanging in his cell. So he tries to kill his brother, is unsuccessful, and then he tries to kill himself. EMS would arrive, and he had been without oxygen for about 15 minutes with no pulse, but they were eventually able to get his heart beating again. But I'm sure he had severe anoxic brain damage at this point. And it's also quite ironic that this man is completely against modern medicine, and modern medicine is what ended up saving his life. Ron was placed in intensive care in a coma for a few days, and Dan believed Ron would recover thanks to divine intervention. So all of this obviously affects the trial, like they were supposed to be tried together, and now Ron is in intensive care. So the judge ordered that Dan then be tried alone. Dan initially confessed to both murders, but again, like, <laughs> there's these quotes from the friends that say that they both admitted to taking part. So it was basically determined Dan was responsible for the murder of Erica and Ron was responsible for the murder of Brenda. In addition to all of this, Dan was given counsel, but then he insisted on defending himself. Like, of course he did. So Dan represents himself with access to standby counsel and he would be found guilty on two charges of first-degree murder, along with several other felonies, after about nine hours of deliberation from the jury. The death penalty was on the table for Dan, but because the jurors were not unanimous in this decision, Dan received two life sentences without the possibility of parole, and he was committed to Utah's state prison. It's said that one of the jurors actually rejected the death penalty, and this juror was a woman. Dan had been making eyes at her and was basically flirting with her. So some people think that Dan influenced this juror and basically convinced her to not sentence him to death. After Ron Lafferty was medically stable, he underwent psychological evaluations to see if he would be competent to stand trial. It was found that he wasn't, so he spent some time in state hospitals, and some sources that I found said during this time they were showing, like, Ron had clear signs of schizophrenia. And again, like, they didn't believe in modern medicine, so this was not being properly treated. He wasn't getting medication. So Ron spends a lot of time in state hospitals, and he keeps having all these competency hearings, and they're not finding him competent. But after the fourth competency hearing, he was finally found competent, and he stood trial in 1985. On May 7, 1985, Ron Lafferty was found guilty, and he was convicted and sentenced to death. There were several appeals, some back and forth with the judicial system over the course of about two decades. 
I'm not going to get into that too much other than saying Ron ultimately had to be retried, but he made several outbursts in court and he was still found guilty in 1996 and he was sentenced to death. When he was asked if he preferred death by intravenous injection or by the firing squad, Ron would say, quote, I don't prefer either one. I prefer to live. That's what I prefer, end quote. The judge then responded that he would select intravenous injection if Ron didn't specify. So that's when Ron said, quote, I've already had the lethal injection of Mormonism, and I kind of wanted to try something different this time. So I'll take the firing squad. How's that? Is that pretty clear? End quote. Ron Lafferty's attorney would later file several more appeals, and this case ended up all the way in the Supreme Court. But all appeals were denied. Ron Lafferty lived out the remainder of his years on death row, and in 2019, at the age of 78, just three months after the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously refused to hear Ron's case, Ron would die of natural causes. Dan Lafferty is still alive in prison today. There's an interview that I watched of him on YouTube, and it's pretty disgusting. Like, he's given, um, he's given talks, like people can come listen to him talk in prison, and he has absolutely zero remorse. He still thinks to this day, and I think he'll always think this because he's so delusional, that what he did was justified and it was for God's will. In 2003, John Krakauer released a book called Under the Banner of Heaven, which was partly based upon interviews with Dan Lafferty. And in April of 2002, Hulu and FX released a limited series that shares the same name. It stars Andrew Garfield, and the series covers the murders, and I personally think that it's very well done, but there's also a lot of controversy around it, because apparently some of Brenda's family feels that she wasn't accurately portrayed. Apparently they didn't portray her as devout enough. They said she was very devout in her faith, and that doesn't seem accurately portrayed in the story. But the events that unfold throughout it are incredibly true to what actually happened, and I think it really brings this story to life and brings up really important discussions about religion and extremism. Brenda and Erica were buried together, with Erica cradled on Brenda's chest which I think is so heartbreaking, but also so special and sweet. They are buried at Sunset Memorial Park Cemetery in Twin Falls, Idaho, with a joint gravestone that reads, quote, The life spent doing something good and accomplishing goals will be remembered beyond the span of life itself. And this was a quote from Brenda. It's said that Alan Lafferty completely separated himself from his family after this. He later remarried and had more children. He also became a lifestyle coach and a motivational speaker in Utah. He also apparently continues to be an active LDS member. So that is the horrifying and absolutely heartbreaking story of the murders of Brenda and Erica Lafferty and the disgusting and depraved Lafferty brothers, Ron and Dan. My revelation that I received that was used as Exhibit 1 today in the court 
uh, does not command anyone to take the life of anyone, and it's been called my hit list, and in, in fact, it is not my hit list. What does it What does it say then? It names certain individuals and uh, and names among them Brenda and Eric Lowry. Yes, as a matter of fact, yes, and uh, those individuals, uh, uh, God said, were in some way holding up the work, and and don't ask me to clarify it because I don't know the end result of it. Uh, you'll have to get on your knees and ask God. <laughs> if you want to know the answer to that, and that's all I can really say about it. Well, I can't say that I don't really care, because I do. I feel that uh, the Lord has taught me some important things, and I'd like to share them. But uh, And I couldn't do that if I, my life was taken. And so, so I do care, yes. But my main concern, you're correct, my main concern is the fact that uh, uh, I would like not to see you people involved in that destruction, and I wish people would listen. And it's this is not uncommon. It's it's history repeating itself, and if God has asked me to give that warning, why, I'm willing to do it at the cost of my life. Would you no. consider yourself martyrs if it came down to where you lost your lives over this, this issue? Uh, no more than any other prophets that have ever lived on the earth? Really hadn't thought of that. I don't. That's not our intention. I'd like to respond to the question over here, what really is on trial? You're on trial, and we're on trial, because this whole moral probation is a trial. And that's what really is on trial. It's not the issue that uh, is catching everyone's attention. That's just... Uh, Frankly, that's a lot of uh, emotion and uh, uh, distraction from reality. you feel a great deal of remorse for your brother Alan? A great deal of remorse? Uh, I can't say that I feel a great deal of remorse for my brother Alan, no. Having lost his wife and his child, do you, I mean, uh, he's got to be in a lot of inner turmoil. Mm -hmm. Do you feel sorry for him? And Well, uh, I have compassion for him, yes. He's my brother, I love him. But life has to go on. But life has to go on, that's correct. So perhaps the whole mystery here is why? Like, why Brenda and Erica? Why did Ron and Dan not turn on their, their wives, their children? I, I think it's pretty fascinating that they, they turned to this one other member of the family. Also, killings like this are pretty rare. It's not very common to have this type of violence and rage unless it's inside of the home. Like, violence like this is usually done between partners, but these brothers-in-law broke into her home and attacked her and her baby. There were a lot of triggers that led up to this killing as well. I mean, they both were excommunicated from the church. They were obviously having a lot of financial trouble. Their mental illness was growing. They grew up in a lot of abuse. So that also kind of brings up the question of, like, how much of this could have been avoided if they didn't grow up in an abusive household? I mean, who's to say? But I just feel like there's a lot of factors here. They grew up in a very patriarchal, extremist household. And then, of course, like, the killing itself. It was so disorganized. There are so many clear signs of mental illness, and nobody did anything leading up to it. It's, it's very heartbreaking. There's a lot of debate around this case as to how much of this was affected by religion and if we should even associate the Lafferty members with Mormonism with LDS at all. I did read some sources that said that the LDS community did have to come out and make a statement saying that they have absolutely nothing to do with the Lafferty brothers. They do not condone any of their beliefs. 
So make of that what you will. But at the same time, the rates of rape, sexual assault, violence, suicide, and of course trauma within the Mormon community are incredibly high. But of course there are other people who could say, like, these were just two deranged men that were hiding behind religion. They could have used it as a way to hide behind their disgusting ideals. So there's a lot of discussion to be had around this case, and I would love to hear y'all's thoughts. So let me know. Send me a DM on Instagram or email me. Uh, Let me know in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. And if you haven't watched Under the Banner of Heaven or read the book, I would encourage you to check it out. If you have, let me know your thoughts. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends, tell the world, hop on Apple or Spotify and leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to this channel, like this video. I hope you guys have a great week, and I hope you stay safe. I will talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Kadra would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious.